Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, pitch battle over human rights, the Saudi state and Newcastle United. On the weekend that this podcast is released, Saudi Arabia will be playing two international football matches at Newcastle United St James's Park against Costa Rica and South Korea. But the results won't really matter, and not just because the games are friendlies. Critics say that whatever the final score, the despotic regime of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, will already have won, simply by virtue of being allowed to host such prestigious games at a venerated English football stadium. The Saudi Public Investment Fund bought Newcastle in 2021 which many observers regarded as a classic case of sports washing, a regime notorious for human rights abuses seeking to create a more positive image for itself. At the time, the Premier League accepted, quotes, legally binding assurances that the public investment fund wasn't an arm of the state. Since then, appearing to directly contradict those assurances, Newcastle's chairman, Yassir Al-Rumaya, was described as, quotes again, a sitting minister of the Saudi government with sovereign immunity in documents lodged by the Public Investment Fund in a US lawsuit. The Premier League hasn't taken any action against them, of course, But then, this isn't really a story about football. It's about geopolitics and Britain's relationship with an emerging power that is seeking to flex its financial and military muscle, even to the extent of developing a nuclear capability. Unfortunately, its leader, MBS, is an autocrat who clamps down on freedom of expression, executes opponents in trials described as unfair by respected human rights organisations and who denies the rights of women and minorities. His military forces have committed atrocities in Yemen and he's been accused of personal complicity in the brutal murder of dissident journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Ahead of the Saudi friendlies, I travelled up to St James's Park to meet John Hurd, a lifelong Newcastle United fan and founder of NUFC Against Sportswashing, and first Lena Al-Hatloul from Saudi human rights organisation Alcust. She has been telling me about her sister, freed from prison last year, but still the subject of a travel ban that means she can't leave Saudi Arabia. My sister Lujain was one of the leaders of the Women to Drive campaign because before 2018, women couldn't drive a car in Saudi. So she was leading that movement and she was also part of the End Male Guardianship System campaign, which aims at dismantling the male guardianship in Saudi Arabia, which is basically a system of laws that consider women as a minor till the end of their lives. Uh, In 2018, when the Saudi government was about to announce the end of the ban on women driving, they arrested all the leaders of the campaign. So in March 2018, my sister was in the Emirates. They uh, kidnapped her from the streets of the Emirates, flew her back to Saudi Arabia on a private plane, blindfolded. She was forcibly disappeared put on a travel ban. And then a couple of months later, in May 2018, the state security, which is the Crown Prince's private police, broke into her house. They took Lujain without a warrant, without telling us where she was going. 
She was forcibly disappeared again. We later found out that during this period she was being tortured. And then she was held in solitary confinement for nine months. When she was officially charged after almost a year, we found out about her charges, which are explicitly mentioning her activism, but also being in contact with diplomats from the UK, the Netherlands and the EU. And before being charged, the public narrative of the government and the state media was to say that she's a foreign agent and that she's in contact with foreign states. But the only foreign countries that were actually named in her charges are the UK, the Netherlands and the EU. So we see what kind of country, you know, the UK is dealing with. MBS himself, the crown prince, said that she's a foreign agent and that he had videos proving it in a Bloomberg interview. And of course, nothing was shown. And Lujan was later released. So just maybe to mention the fact that torture was not a mistake. It was coordinated and controlled and overseen by Saud al-Gahtani, who is the crown prince's right-hand man. And he was the one ordering that she gets electrocuted, waterboarded, flogged, beaten, sexually harassed. So then with the pressure, with the case of my sister gaining international attention, she was released, but she's still on a travel ban, meaning she can't leave the country. She was targeted with Pegasus, so she's always surveilled. That's Israeli-developed software, Pegasus. So Pegasus is an Israeli zero-click malware, meaning that without you clicking on any link, just because they have your phone number, they can have all the data of your phone. And Lujin was actually one of the first victims of that malware. Now she's in Saudi. We can't say she's free. She's in a bigger prison. You know, when you can't speak, when you are muzzled, when you can't express yourself, when you're not free. She is allowed to move within the Saudi borders, but she can't leave Saudi borders. And this is not only her case. It's the case of my whole family. My whole family is in a travel ban. So now... Given that Saudi has become a pure police state, there are collective punishments, collective sanctions on families as well, meaning that my family, without any official decision, they're on a travel ban. I haven't seen them in over five years now. Were you involved in human rights campaigning before the case of your sister? No, I've never been an activist before my sister's case, and I had no idea what was happening. This is exactly what I often say, is that the Saudi government is their own enemies. I mean, they could have taken us as allies to the reforms. I mean, what Lujain was campaigning for is what is actually now granted. So, you know, they can't take the Saudi people as allies and build a true reforms and build a healthy society. But what is happening is actually just a one-man rule, imposing changes and choosing which changes he will grant based on the survival of his own political interests. So your sister was campaigning for something that the government was already planning to introduce, but the fact that it was a civilian seeking to promote it rather than coming from MBS himself, that's seen as taking power away from the crown prince, and that's what can't be tolerated. Exactly. So what can't be tolerated is anyone who speaks their mind. I mean... When we talk about women empowerment in Saudi Arabia and that, you know, women have been granted some rights and so on, we can't call that women empowerment when you're muzzling women for demanding their own rights. If women are not at the forefront of this fight, then it's not women empowering. It's just another kind of repression. When you tell them, okay, stay silent 
and you can do that, stay silent and you can't do that, then you're not empowering them. And I'll just add one more thing is that social changes in Saudi Arabia are fake. They're changes, but they're not reforms. So for example, everyone has applauded the fact that women now can travel without the prior consent of their male guardian. But what people have not digged into is that there is still the disobedience law, meaning that your male guardian, so your father, your husband, or sometimes your son, can consider anything as disobedience. So if you travel and come back and your male guardian considers that disobedience, you can get arrested for that. So any new granted, quote-unquote, reform or change is can still be vetoed by the disobedience law. So we still grant every power to the man to oppose any decision on the woman. Last thing, I just want to talk about the case of Manahel. Manahel Al-Atebi is a fitness instructor. She is being tried at the terrorism court for not wearing a abaya. So when people tell me you have to have a strong man to change things in a very backward society and so on, I tell them, okay, but let's look at the facts. Have women been granted these rights? The premise of your argument is wrong because we don't have reforms. When you still imprison a woman for not wearing a abaya, based on very vague laws, then you're not reforming the country. And when you're not doing it with women, then you're not reforming the country. The UK government has been a friend to Saudi Arabia. Britain has supplied weapons to Saudi Arabia and is giving an official reception to MBS. He will be here on a state visit. What do you make of that? Of course I'm frustrated, of course I'm mad, of course the man who has ordered the torture and the arrest of my sister is a very personal story. But I think that what should be mentioned in this case is that we are emboldening and legitimizing a man who will be unstoppable. So today the West still have leverage over him that after Khashoggi, you know, it was a bit toxic and people accepted not to invite him and to boycott him and so on. And today, because we are rehabilitating him, we're giving him more power, we are allowing him to be unstoppable and him have leverage. So let's remember who MBS is. When he came to power, the first thing he did is to arrest all the businessmen of Saudi Arabia and steal their money. Just, you know, a parallel with football. When we see Al-Walid, the prince Al-Walid bin Talal, uh, on a video call with Neymar, who is going to play in Saudi Arabia, what people don't know is that Al-Walid is on a travel ban. So even a prince... So this leads me to that the more power, the more legitimacy we give MBS, the less venues for accountability we will have. There are still venues for uh, accountability, for the murder of Khashoggi, for the war in Yemen, for the arrest and torture of the women's rights activists, for all the violations of Saudi Arabia. But the less we do now, the less we'll be able to do in the future. We are emboldening, really, a monster that will be unstoppable in a couple of years, not only because of a state visit and legitimacy and image, but also, now we get back to football, but also by allowing this very same man to own entertainment industry, to own other sectors. Soon the U.S. is almost accepting to give Saudi Arabia the nuclear weapon. This is really unbelievable. And why is that? For short-sighted policies, really. In the long term, it will backfire. Uh, We see it, Saudi Arabia, considering the UK as an enemy state on activist charges today. 
as well as Newcastle United, Saudi Arabia is trying to grow its own domestic pro league by signing some of the best players in the world to play in Saudi Arabia. But what do you think the Saudi Arabian government is doing here in Newcastle and getting involved in clubs like this? What is that about? To be honest, these questions are not questions I can really answer. What I can answer is the consequences of such deals. You know, I don't know why the Saudi government, whether it's for really economic diversification, if it's really for their reputation. I don't know. I wasn't there during negotiations. But what I can talk about is really the consequences of such deals. So now that the Saudi government is getting involved and people are accepting to be bought by Saudi Arabia, they're also accepting to sell their silence, really. Everyone has self-censored themselves since Saudi Arabia got involved in a deal. Just like football players saying that they're going to Saudi Arabia to create bridges and have links between different cultures and so on. This can be true only if you speak. You can't be in Saudi Arabia and accept to be a tool. So if you go there and you speak and you say, why is Salman Shihab in prison? Why is Lujain still on a travel ban? Why are you executing minors? Then this can bring change. But what we've seen is that every time Saudi Arabia is in a project, people self-censor themselves and accept to be bought. I work for the Byline Times, and I'm proud to do that and make the Byline Times podcast an independent progressive news outlet that asks questions of those in power. If I was doing this job in Riyadh now, what would MBS do to me? Well, we can see what uh, he has done to Jamal Khashoggi. And we see that he went as far as cutting a journalist into pieces because he spoke and criticized some of the policies. So I think that the very first thing is that you probably wouldn't be allowed in Saudi in the first place. Um, and the second place, if you go to Saudi and speak, as a foreign journalist, I would say, you could come back and be allowed to publish what you have with Saudi backlash. Uh, but if you were Saudi, unfortunately, uh, you'd be in my opinion, probably forcibly disappeared. You're just in prison and not allowed any outside contact. So, John, just introduce yourself, please. I'm John Hurd from The Felon near Newcastle, and I'm a Newcastle fan and founder and activist in Newcastle United Fans Against Sports Washing. Newcastle United have arranged for Saudi Arabia to play two friendly internationals here at St James's Park, and we're standing in the shadow of the Gallagher stand here. Alan Shearer's statue, Bobby Robson's statue, is over there. You've been campaigning for a while now. What do you make of the fact that Saudi Arabia are having international friendlies here? Well, I think it's the logical conclusion of the normalisation of the ownership of the club by a bloody dictatorship. You know, MBS didn't buy the club because he loves football or he loves the people of Newcastle. He bought it as a tool to promote the regime. And is anyone surprised that they would actually use St. James's Park for Saudi sports washing friendlies? It's outrageous, absolutely outrageous. It is a step forward, isn't it, from buying Newcastle United to actually hosting international games, not for England, which would be a feather in the cap for Newcastle United, but for Saudi Arabia. As a football fan, I can't think of any kind of parallel. It's incredible, yeah. Um, statisticians can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the last time Saudi Arabia played in the UK was 1998. And it's almost unprecedented that a foreign country would be allowed to play friendlies, especially a state like that. You know, imagine if Iran asked if they could play two friendlies at Newcastle 
or North Korea. It's just ridiculous. And I think it's actually had an effect on a lot of fans, as we say, or in the middle, who are saying this is too much. It's quite embarrassing, actually, that the Saudi state's been allowed to use St. James's Park as a billboard for their uh, regime. You know, we've got Lena here from, who's a Saudi exile, who's talking about her sister, whose sister's been tortured. She's under house arrest. The young miners are on death row. They want to hide all that by saying, look, you know, we can play internationals at St. James's Park. You used a comparison there of Iran and North Korea with Saudi Arabia. Do you think that's a fair comparison? Saudi Arabia is, unlike those two states, a country with which the British state has friendly relations. It's a country that Britain supplies arms to. It's a country which every time we fill up at the petrol station, listeners to this podcast will quite possibly be using Saudi oil. Well, that's an interesting thing uh, because Lena just revealed that her sister, who was I said was tortured in prison. One of the charges was that she was in contact with foreign hostile states. What states were those? Holland and Great Britain. So the Saudi dictatorship considers that a Saudi citizen being in contact with people in Britain is a hostile act and she was charged for that. So there's a lot of double talk in this. But on the comparison, there's another good comparison. I think last year, Newcastle City Council broke off relations with China because of the torture of the Muslim minority there. It's the Uyghur population. The the Uyghur population, exactly. So what's the difference? The Saudi state is renowned for their torture. That's what they do to people. So the comparison, I think, is apt, completely apt. Newcastle United and every club in the Premier League subscribes to the notions of diversity, of inclusion. They have the annual Rainbow Laces weekend, which is in support of LGBTQ plus inclusion in football. Clearly, if you're LGBTQ plus in Saudi Arabia, you're not particularly well looked on by the state. How do you think the Premier League and Newcastle United's claim to be inclusive tallies with the reality of life in Saudi Arabia? Obviously, it doesn't. And also, there's an example of the massive contradictions in allowing a regime which discriminates so terribly against the LGBT plus community. Jordan Henderson just made a statement just saying perhaps him being there would make a difference. Well, message to Jordan is, well, speak out in favour of gay people in Saudi Arabia. Mention Salma al-Shabaab's name. What about Nora al-Qatali, women jailed for tweeting? Do it, Jordan, and let's see what happens. I think probably Jordan would be better off coming home, playing for Sunderland. A bit better for him and better for football. You know, the truth is that it's a massive contradiction. It doesn't cost the Saudi regime anything to go along with the existing rules of flying the rainbow flag and using the laces. But what's the reality for that community in Saudi Arabia? It's horrendous. Mohammed bin Salman, the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia, is going to be welcomed to the United Kingdom for a state visit. How can Newcastle United say we're not going to deal with this regime if our country is greeting the ruler of that country? Well, our country, there's a lot of people, a lot of important organisations, individuals, parliamentarians, who don't want MBS to come to Britain. You think about it, a few years ago, he was a pariah. How's he got back 
into the international fold, mostly because of the money, because of the promises of investment, where a lot of times it doesn't actually come to fruition. But, you know, this is a state, and I don't have to repeat all the crimes that they're committing, who, you know, is being welcomed. Well, it's the Conservative government. I think an important point for Newcastle fans is where's the red line? You know, we've just got these internationals, Saudi state internationals. When Mohammed bin Salman comes to Britain, is he going to pop into a Newcastle match? Would that be too much? I think it's a little bit like what you call the salami tactic, you know, bit by bit, normalising and legitimising their ownership. And that's why we're here today. That's why we're protesting. And you've argued that the Public Investment Fund, which is the fund that ultimately owns Newcastle United and which the Saudi government says is distinct from the Saudi state, you believe that it is in fact an instrument of the state? Well, it's not my belief, as most people think. You know, at the beginning, there was a big campaign to separate the PIF from the Saudi state. What's happened since then? Now they don't even bother. You know, it's, it's the Saudi state that owns Newcastle United. But they've also admitted in court papers in the United States over the Live Golf cases, which are still going on, that Yasser al-Rumayan, the Newcastle chairman, is a sovereign minister in the Saudi government. You know, these binding assurances that the Premier League supposedly have, saying that the Saudi state wouldn't control Newcastle United, I think that needs to be revisited. You know, we would say that the Premier League should actually, in the name of transparency, publish these assurances because obviously, as Lena said, they're not worth the paper they're written on. Mohammed bin Salman is the chairman of the PIF. And Lena was explaining how things work. It's not just a dictatorship that runs Saudi Arabia. It's one family. It's a royal dictatorship. And who's the head guy? It's Mohammed bin Salman. Ipso facto, he controls Newcastle United, unfortunately. Newcastle fans, the arrival of owners with untold wealth is a dream come true, isn't it? You know, as a fan, how important this club is to this city. It's right in the centre of town, where we're standing here by the stadium, and it's a massive one-club town. Honestly, how are Newcastle fans treating your campaign? Because publicly at least, they're behind the club. They're turning out, as we knew they would do, in vast numbers to support a quickly improving team under Eddie Howe. I think there's three sections of fans here, and we've gone through a process and an experience. But basically, I'd say that the minority on one side, our minority, fans who are implacably opposed to a bloody dictatorship uh, owning the club, is grown. And events like these internationals only helps our cause. And then, unfortunately, there's another minority, a small minority, who are prepared to repeat Saudi state lies about like the sister of Lena. You know, when we publicised the question of Salman and Nor al-Qatani, some fans come up and say, they're terrorists. Now, where does that come from? That comes directly from Riyadh. I think the vast majority of fans basically do not support what the Saudi state is doing, but they don't see any alternative. And I think it's our job and everyone involved in football, especially fan-led movements, is to say there's an alternative. It doesn't have to be like this. I think a reflection would be that if it was uh, three years ago, if you asked any Newcastle fan, and you said to them, do you believe in human rights? Do you believe in women's rights? Do you believe in, you know, supporting the LGBT plus community? They would have said yes. So why is it two years later that we can't find public representatives, it's scandalous actually, who would actually be prepared to say 
we don't agree with what the Saudi state is doing in Saudi Arabia. So I think it's an ongoing process. There's other factors, you know, the question of football ownership, there are alternatives. But to boil it down, we don't want to win like this. What has been the support for your cause from local politicians, whether MPs or local councillors? Have they stood behind you? Okay, put it starkly. We asked Lena's human rights organisation to write to all the councillors in Newcastle, that's over 90, to all the Tyneside MPs, and they did. They got a response from Liberal Democrats. She met the Liberal Democrats too today. Jane Byrne, who was involved in well, breaking off relations with the Chinese state, who's Labour, and also Jamie Driscoll said, you know, the mayor who's been kicked out of uh, the Labour Party said they would be prepared to speak to Lena, but he unfortunately couldn't come to the meeting. But Chai, the Newcastle Central MP who spoke it out in the past, did make a statement in the press, and also Newcastle City Council said that they have concerns about the Saudi state owning Newcastle United. But we pointed out to them the only reason they made that statement is because we asked them. And they wouldn't have said anything. They were going to let these two friendlies go by without comment. And I think that's a sad, sad, sad indictment on the state of politics. Because even three, five years ago, I think a prominent human rights representative, an activist like Lena, had come to Newcastle, she would have been listened to by the local politicians. But we're not going to go away. We're going to keep coming back to the issue, you know. You think that MPs and councillors have been silenced by what? Fear? Well, this is an interesting thing because we were talking about it and Lena says, well, this actually shows a little bit the toxic effect of having the Saudi state in control of such an institution as Newcastle. said, you know, we've got democracy. We can still tweet. We can post things on Facebook without fear of being arrested. But also we can voice our opinions. You, know, you, you can't take those things for granted. We've got to actually use them. And when you've got the case, you know, the example, you know, if, if we hold China to a certain standard, why aren't councillors and politicians in the northeast holding the Saudi state to the same standard? It's very simple. They should be, you know. John Hurd from NUFC Against Sports Washing. My thanks to him and also to Lena Al-Hathloul from Alcust, who you heard earlier in the podcast. Before we go, just a quick reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our brilliant monthly newspaper, which combines the best of our online offerings with content that you can't read anywhere else. We're the news outlet that exposed the Dan Wooten story when others chose to look the other way. That was a three-year investigation. So do support us if you can. Head over to bylinetimes.com and take out a subscription. And if you've already done so, thank you very much indeed. This episode was produced by me, Adrian Goldberg, and Harvey White in Birmingham. It is a We Bring Audio production for the Byline Times. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Cheers now.